You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 4, for November 4th, 2007. Warning, this week's story contains violence and mature themes. It's probably safe for most audiences, but listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another episode of the Metamore City Podcast. I am Chris Lester, your host and the creator of Metamore City. But as of this week, I'm happy to say that I am no longer the star of the show. Beginning this week and continuing on through our episodes for at least the next year, Metamore City is going to feature a whole passel of voice actors from all over the world. I put out the call for people to help bring these stories to life, and let me tell you guys, I am just humbled and amazed by the way that the podcast community has responded. I have got the most awesome cast lined up for you guys in the months to come, and I'll have a lot more about those guest actors in our next episode. This week's episode is part one of a two-part story. I want to make sure to keep this podcast at an hour or less so people can still burn them to CDs, so the next two stories you're going to hear are going to be broken up over two shows apiece. It's not my favorite way to present these stories, I'll admit it, but I'd better get used to it. The first big Metamore City novel is coming up at the end of this year, so this whole splitting stories into pieces thing, it's going to get really important. So, I am proud to present this week's story, part one of The Muse. It introduces us to Will Karenson, an aspiring young writer who is about to get more inspiration in his life than he knows what to do with. This story features the voice talents of Beck Viper and Bill Bowman. Both Becky and Bilbo are members of my Sunday night gaming group, and as we geeks all know, role players are some of the biggest characters around, so they were naturals for this. Now then, let's get on with the story. So, grab your notepad and polish up your narrative voice. It's time to hit the street. The Muse, by Chris Lester. October 29th, 1999. Christos Reckoning. James William Carenson walked down the busy streets of downtown Metamore with his jacket hood up, his hands in his pockets, and entirely too much on his mind. While those around him moved in twos, threes, and roving packs from one night spot to another, or stood chatting outside the bars, nightclubs, and coffee shops, He walked alone, his eyes darting this way and that to take in his surroundings. He studied each person who passed him with careful scrutiny, quickly taking in height, build, color, dress, and attitude, before moving on to his next subject. All the while the wheels in his head spun like high-speed propellers, far faster than anyone would have expected of a young college student out walking on a Friday night. He wasn't looking for anyone in particular, nor was he paranoid. He was just thinking about how he would describe the scene in his great Metamorian novel. 
The chill October wind blew around and through me as I walked the streets of the city, he thought. It was eleven, or a little past that. And while in most places it would be a time for closing up shop, here the nightlife was just beginning to heat up. They say that Metamore is the city that never sleeps, but she does seem to catch the odd catnip from time to time. Tonight it felt like she'd nodded off in a corner for a few hours and awakened refreshed and ready to party. In truth, James William Carenson didn't have a great Metamorian novel. He didn't really even have a great Metamorian short story. But he was working on that. It was just a matter of time. Well, time, effort, and a lot of cups of coffee at late hours of the evening after his homework was done. His family called him Jamie, to distinguish him from his father, who was also named James. When he came to Metamore City and started college, he had begun introducing himself to people as Will, a name he thought more appropriate for a famous novelist. J. William Carenson was a name that could sell books, or at least he hoped so. In any event, it was a relief just to get rid of Jamie, whatever the excuse. Will was really a pretty normal kid in most ways. Medium height, blue-gray eyes, sandy brown hair that had finally given up on being blonde about five years back. He was slim, with a genetic predisposition towards scrawny, and had facial features that were slowly maturing from cute to fairly handsome. He wore jeans and skyball shoes, though he rarely played, sweaters in winter and short-sleeve plaid button-downs in the summer, and a short, even, and slightly spiky haircut that had been in style about two years ago. He was the sort of fellow you could sit two chairs away from in class for an entire semester and never remember seeing him before in your life. Will had learned this in his attempts to pick up girls on campus. He had come to the city two years ago from his hometown of Haverfield in order to become a great writer. Officially, of course, he had come here to attend college at Empire University's School of Communications, but that was just a cover story to keep the checks coming from mom and dad. It was a legitimate career path in their eyes, but being a journalist was about as close to being a writer as being a commercial skyship captain was to being a fighter pilot. It wasn't what Will wanted. Journalists sat in crowded bullpens, day after day, churning out dreary, lifeless prose that would be read by the locals and then recycled the next morning. Writers had the potential to see their work read by millions and remembered for years, decades, even centuries. They could look back at the end of their careers and know that they had contributed something special, something meaningful, to the history of the world. A writer's job was to put his fingers to the wrist of his culture and record that pulse for posterity. That was Will's dream, his vision. Even, if he could be forgiven a little irrational enthusiasm, his destiny. Unfortunately, one's destiny can often seem rather elusive. Will had discovered, even before coming to the city, that his muse was, like all muses, an incredibly finicky and temperamental mistress. He'd had several good short stories over the years, a few of them bordering on brilliant, and some of them had even been published, but these gifts from his imaginary goddess of inspiration were, in truth, frustratingly infrequent. She would hang around and whisper in his ear for hours or days or weeks, and then suddenly go off on an extended vacation without informing Will of her whereabouts or when she planned to return. It was very much a love-hate relationship from Will's point of view, not to mention on-again, off-again. 
Right now it was off again, so Will was walking the streets alone at night, composing scenes in his head in hopes of enticing her back to him. Failing that, maybe he could convince one of the real muses to take him on as a pupil, out of pity, if nothing else. It was hard to believe that the actual spirits of inspiration could be any crueler to him than the metaphorical one inside his head. Will grinned at that thought, remembering a lesson from one of the many books he'd studied on how to be an author. When writing fiction that incorporates the magical or the supernatural, never use metaphor. Your readers will either take your metaphors literally, or take your spells and spirits as metaphorical. Either way, you're in trouble. It was a good lesson, but mostly aimed at writers in more mundane communities than Metamore City. Magic was as real and alive in the world now as it had ever been, if not more so, but it wasn't distributed evenly. Growing up in Haverfield, in the remotest suburbs of Elkaran, Will had never seen a wizard, a deva, a vampire, or anything of that sort. Here in Metamore, they were in every club and alley. Will was in the process of debating whether he would classify that last thought as literal or hyperbole when he felt a hand on his shoulder. He stopped, turned, and abruptly found himself face to face with a woman. She was young, maybe a little older than him, and about his height. Her hair was a wild, matted poof of mousy brown, with shocks of gold running through it. It fell to just above her shoulders, and flew outward at about the same distance in every direction except straight up, giving it the look of a lion's mane. Her tight black leather pants contrasted with her rather mundane walking shoes, and the forest green turtleneck she wore didn't really seem to go with either of them. He couldn't see her face very well in the dim light of the street lamps, but from what he saw she looked quite pretty. She was wearing a big, bright smile that was cheerful, inviting, and carried a few undertones that Will had seen in movies but had no personal experience with. "'Hey, Tiger,' she said, her voice a purr that nicely matched her expression. "'You busy tonight?' For a young man who had spent the entire evening thinking about writing, Will was surprisingly at a loss for words. Uh, um, uh, no, not really, he stammered, still trying to figure out if that expression was really what he thought it was. He was a writer, so naturally he was quite familiar with terms like enticing, sensual, and seductive. He just wasn't used to seeing them up close. The woman wrapped her arms around his neck and leaned forward a little. Wanna be? she asked. Behind her, a passerby tripped over his own feet and went sprawling to the pavement, much to the amusement of his companions. Will barely noticed certain other things looming a bit larger in his field of vision. Um, uh... Whew, he said. Great! Come on, then! Taking him by the arm, she turned and began walking in the same direction he'd been going. Will followed without really thinking about it. His mind was in the middle of a rather sudden reboot, and hadn't gotten around to re-establishing much more than the basic motor functions yet. "'Thanks so much for doing this,' the girl said, sounding genuinely grateful. "'Just keep walking and don't look back. Do you mind if I borrow your jacket, too? It'll help keep them from spotting us.' Something about that last bit set off alarm bells in Will's head. As verbal skills finally came back online, he managed... "'Spotting us? Who?' "'Long story. Jacket, please.' She stretched out a hand. Obediently and somewhat numbly, Will took it off and handed it over. 
She quickly put it on, raised the hood, and zipped it up as far as it would go. Perfect, she said. Warm, too. I like that. Now, put your arm around me and try to look snuggly. She demonstrated, sliding a hand around to his opposite side and pulling him toward her in a kind of sideways hug. Will responded to the sudden squeeze by nearly jumping out of his skin. Take it easy, she hissed. Then, more gently, Jumpy, aren't you? Sorry, Will said, ducking his head. It tickled. Aww, the woman cooed, as if she found the fact that he was ticklish to be completely adorable. Sorry about that, tiger. Here, I'll put my hand a little lower this time. She repeated the motion, this time letting her hand settle over his belt. Sheepishly, he did likewise, and after a few awkward seconds, they were walking down the street in a fairly comfortable embrace. See? Isn't this nice? She said, resting her head against his shoulder. No tickling involved. I can't really complain, Will said, reaching for and nearly recovering the wry sense of humor that he liked to consider his trademark. So, um, I'm sorry, what did you say your name was? I didn't. In spite of himself, Will chuckled once at that. <laughs> well, no, I realized that, but I was trying to be polite. It's Callie. What's yours? Will. There's a difference between polite and pompous, Will. I think you were starting to drift from one to the other. Thanks for the tip. Will swallowed once and tried to will away the sudden burning in his cheeks, taking note of the pun in passing and filing it away for future use. So, Callie, why are we doing this? There are some guys out here looking for me that I'd like to avoid, she said, turning her head a little in either direction to get a better look at their surroundings. They're looking for a woman by herself, so they're less likely to notice me this way. I hope you don't mind. Well, it wasn't like I was doing much of anything else, Will admitted. You're not in trouble with the cops, are you? Callie chuckled. <laughs> no, not with the cops. These guys are from Streetside. Will swallowed again, this time trying to get rid of the lump that had suddenly begun to rise in his throat. He'd never been down to the street, the district of factories, warehouses, and slums that made up the ground level of the city, but he'd heard plenty of stories. You had to be resilient, stubborn, or just plain mean to survive on the street. A lot of its residents were all three. And they were only one level above the street right now, on one of the wide, elevated walkways that wrapped around Metamore's enormous skyscrapers and flowed together to form a network of city blocks and open plazas, suspended in midair by a combination of clever engineering and careful enchantment. A thirty-second ride in a lift could put them in contact with all sorts of colorful people, the kind that made great literary characters but lousy acquaintances. Suddenly, the downtown district didn't seem as safe as it had a few minutes ago. What should we do? Will asked. Should we try to find a cop? Normally, not a bad idea. But we'd better give it a pass in this case, Callie said. I'll explain later, after we get out of this. For now, just keep walking. I'll steer us where we need to go. They walked two more blocks like that, just moving casually among the crowds of people. Will desperately wanted to look around for any sign of their pursuers, but Callie insisted that he keep his eyes straight ahead or focused on her. Anything more would just draw attention to them. After the second block, they turned right, crossed two lanes of slow-moving skimmer traffic, and ducked inside a nightclub that didn't have a line waiting to get in. 
The bouncer, who had just spilled his drink as they approached, was a bit distracted and waved them inside without even bothering to check their ID. The place was plenty crowded inside, though, and they were swiftly greeted by both a wall of people and the heavy, thunderous beat of moderately fast, moderately hardcore music. They squeezed and shimmied their way through the traffic on the dance floor to settle into one of the booths in a dimly lit corner of the room. At Callie's instruction, they sat together on the same side of the booth, facing away from the door. She snuggled up close to him and rested her head on his chest. "'If there is somebody following you, how will you see them coming?' Will asked, speaking directly into her ear in order to keep his voice down. Callie gestured at the bar, off to their right. There was a mirrored wall behind it that gave a nice view of the front entrance. To the left of the bar was the exit to the building's interior, which on this floor was probably a shopping center. "'Good thinking,' Will said. "'Experience,' Callie replied. Will wasn't sure he liked the implications of that. After a few minutes, their mysterious pursuers turned up. There were only four of them, but Will was quite sure he wouldn't want to get mixed up with them. They were stocky and muscular, dressed in leather jackets and adorned with far too much heavy gold jewelry to qualify as nice guys. Probably swoopies, based on what Will knew of such things. The fact that they were Lutons just helped to round out the image that they were trying to convey. Not that Will had anything against Lutons in principle, but their species did seem rather appropriate in this case. Stereotypes didn't come into existence without at least some justification, after all. There's our guys, Callie murmured, so soft that Will almost didn't hear her over the pounding music. No, don't look at them. Look at me. Will did so, taking the opportunity to examine her face again. If anything, there was less light in here than there had been outside, but he also had more time to look. He could make out large, expressive eyes, unblemished skin, a pert nose, and a chin that was pointed without being jutting. Her cheekbones were high and moderately defined, her eyebrows were high and thin, and her mouth had a slight upturn at the left corner that gave it a cute, perpetually quirky look. Will mentally upgraded her from quite pretty to beautiful. While he was studying her, Callie was studying the newcomers, sneaking little glances at them over Will's shoulders while pretending to be focused on him. She leaned in close to him, running a hand over his cheek and down the back of his neck, then leaned in as if to whisper seductively in his ear, in actuality to get a better look at her pursuers. Will was beginning to feel distinctly uncomfortable. This was the most attention he had ever received from a member of the opposite sex, at least since he'd gotten out of diapers, and neither his mind nor his body was quite sure how to handle it. The fact that he knew it was an act didn't help matters very much. "'What are they doing?' he whispered, trying to get his mind focused back on the imminent danger and off of the woman who was practically sitting in his lap. "'They're checking the dance floor,' Callie said, her breath tickling his ear as she placed her mouth right in front of it. "'One of them's taking the high ground over by the entrance.' Two are down on the floor now. Looks like they're checking on girls who are dancing alone. The fourth one? Uh-oh. What? He's checking the booths and tables. Would he recognize you? Don't know. He's seen me before, but it's not always easy to tell faces apart if they aren't your race or species. It really depends on how much contact he's had with humans, and that's something I really couldn't tell you. That answer was less reassuring than Will really would have liked. So what do we do? Stick with the plan. 
They obviously aren't expecting me to be with anybody, or they would be taking a closer look at the couples on the dance floor. She drew back and looked him in the eyes. Whatever happens, don't panic. Think you can handle that, Will? Taking a deep breath, Will nodded. Yeah, I I think so. Callie smiled. Good. Then she took his head in her hands and kissed him. To his credit, Will did not panic. He was, however, so thoroughly surprised that his jaw dropped open, to which Callie responded by thrusting her tongue into his mouth. Will had been kissed on only a few occasions before, despite his good looks, and no woman had ever kissed him like this. In spite of all that, however, Will adapted with remarkable speed and was soon returning the kiss with equal enthusiasm, albeit far less skill. He wrapped his arms around her and drew her closer to himself, and for several long and glorious minutes the world fell away, and there was nothing but her lips, her scent, her touch. At last they parted, slowly, Callie drawing out his bottom lip before finally releasing it from between her own. Will took another long, deep breath to restore oxygen to the higher portions of his brain. Wow, he breathed. That was... He shook his head slightly in wonder. Callie smiled. You catch on pretty quick for a beginner. Will grinned. Thanks. The grin abruptly slid off his face. You knew I was a beginner? Callie put a finger to his bottom lip and playfully stuck out her tongue between her teeth. You pay attention. I like that. She slid out of the booth and extended a hand to him. They're gone. I think I'm safe for the time being. Thanks. I owe you one. It was my pleasure, Will said. I mean, really, my pleasure. Callie grinned. Two choices, Tiger. I'll give you back your coat and keep on walking. Or you show me where a girl can get a decent cup of coffee around here. Where's here? Will asked. Twelfth and Green. Ring any bells? He smiled, glad to be the one calling the shots for a change. I think I know a little place about a block from here. It was a pretty typical little independent coffee bar, the kind frequented mainly by writers, poets, art students, and other quietly anti-establishment types. Will sometimes came here to study or write in hopes of giving his mind a change of scenery. The walls were painted a warm, rich, reddish-brown, with maple trim, and decorated with abstract art that Will suspected was meant to be profound. He and Callie nursed a couple of cups of coffee and gazed at each other across a small table. The lighting here was a warm, mellow golden hue, but it was bright enough for Will to once again reevaluate the girl sitting before him. His writer's brain ran over its earlier description of her to see if there was anything that needed revising. She was the strangest combination of beautiful and disheveled I had ever seen, he thought, his mind quickly and instinctively converting his observations to past tense narrative. On the one hand, her makeup was perfect. Well, I really didn't know much about makeup, but whatever she was doing was working great for her. And her clothes were clean and carried the scent of perfume. On the other hand, her hair was a tangled mess, and her outfit looked like it had been scavenged at random from the hampers of three different college girls. If she was trying to make a statement, I didn't have a clue what it was. What really caught his attention now, though, were her eyes. 
They were a deep green that roughly matched the color of her turtleneck, with little flecks of black and gold mixed in here and there. They sparkled with life and humor as she regarded him casually from across the table. So, Will, she said, tell me about yourself. Well, um, all right. Will straightened a little bit in his chair and tried to turn his focus back toward the here and now. My name is J. Williams Karenson, and I'm a writer. Any further exposition was cut off by a sudden shriek of delight from a woman behind him, who'd found a twenty-mark bill tucked into the pot of artificial flowers at her table. "'What's the J stand for?' Callie asked, ignoring the other woman's cries of her good fortune. "'James, my father.' "'Gotcha. So, what do you write, Mr. J. William Karenson?' She put a little imitation of an upper-class accent into the last bit, for maybe the first time Will realized how pretentious it sounded. He shrugged. Fiction? I'm still experimenting with different genres. I've had a few short stories published, but nothing bigger yet. I'm still waiting for my big breakout concept. And in the meantime, you're going to college to keep food on the table? Will grinned. Pretty much. What about you? You said you'd explain what this was all about when we were safe. Who were those guys? Why were they after you? Callie smirked. I have something they want back. Want back? Will frowned. You stole something from them? Stole back, really. It wasn't theirs to begin with. Will gave her a quizzical look. She rolled her eyes and let out a short little sigh. <sighs> Do you know what a runner is, Will? You mean those pieces of carpeting you put down to keep people from tracking mud over the floors? She smirked again. <laughs> Not even. A runner is a person who does freelance missions for the underworld bosses and other people who don't want to draw attention to themselves. Mages guilds, the Psy Collective, the Lothanazi, big corporations who don't want their hands dirty. Even the government hires them from time to time. Huh. So what do these runners do for them? Callie shrugged. Lots of different things. Courier work, espionage, burglary, computer cracking. Different runners have different specialties. We don't kill or threaten people, but just about anything else is fair game. Wow. Sounds like a very... Will frowned as his brain caught up with her. Did you say we? Callie nodded. I'm a runner. Like I said, those greenies were looking for me because I stole something from their boss. Something that he had stolen from my client. Will leaned back in his chair and thought about that for a moment. Who's their boss? he asked. Street-level wolf, Callie said. Will recognized the slang term for an unlicensed mage who'd had his magic-inhibiting restraining band illegally removed. A conjurer. Goes by the name of Trajan. Runs a gang down in Sola. Bad customer. You wouldn't want to meet him. Will didn't doubt that for a minute. So what did he steal? An icon from St. Mariah's Cathedral. You do know what tomorrow night is, right? A uh, daedracama, Will offered. Costumes, wild parties, kids begging for candy. And also a big night for the forces of darkness, Callie added. Trajan needs to deface the icon in a ritual, tomorrow at midnight. He hopes to summon a balrog to wipe out an enemy gang horning in on his turf. Will shivered at that. A balrog? That's one of the really bad kinds of Daedra, isn't it? Callie smiled humorlessly. You got that right. Will he even be able to control something like that? 
Not for more than a few minutes, if my experience with Trajan is anything to go on, Callie said. It could tear its way through six city blocks before the Lothanasi find it and deal with it. And you can't call the Lothanasi and give them the heads up because... I stole something from them a few weeks ago, and they still aren't happy about it, Callie nodded. We have to make sure to keep the icon away from Trajan until after midnight tomorrow. Where is it now? I stashed it somewhere, but it won't be safe there for long. I'll have to go back for it. She smiled. What do you say, Tiger? Want to help me save the city from the bad guys? A smile slowly spread over Will's face. I paused to take in her offer. He thought, like it or not, I'd stepped into something dangerous. The dark and veiled underbelly of the city that most people either didn't know about or tried to forget. Now this beautiful stranger had walked into my life and given me a free pass to walk on the wild side. I was scared, of course. If I took this step, I would enter a world that could swallow me whole. A world where the monsters walked in the open, and the skeletons in people's closets sometimes came out to play. Helping this woman would be the most dangerous thing I'd ever done in my life. But at the same time, it was a chance to do something that mattered. A chance to be a hero. A chance to step away from writing about adventures and start living one. A chance to... Um, Will? Callie waved her hand in front of his face. You here with me or what? I smiled grimly. If there would be danger, let it come. If it meant a chance to be a hero, and another day or two in Callie's company, it would all be worth it. I had my casting call from Destiny, and it was time for my close-up. Sure, he said. It's not like I have anything better to do. The seven blocks back to Callie's hiding spot passed without incident, as she and Will kept up their little charade of being the two lovebirds lost in each other's eyes. They approached the building from the side opposite where Callie had emerged, in case Trajan's thugs were expecting her to retrace her steps, and rode a lift up to the fourth street level. They emerged in the middle of a high-class, glitzy shopping district, full of the sorts of stores Will had barely heard of, much less bought anything from. The stores were all closed at this hour, but a few upscale nightclubs were still open here and there, and a modest but steady trickle of pedestrians passed in all directions along the plazas and skyways. Bypassing the street-front shops, they made their way into the building's interior. It was another shopping mall, but this one had high, arched ceilings, crystal chandeliers, and ornate fountains. Very few people were in here, mostly just maintenance staff and security guards. Two-thirds of the lights were turned off, giving the whole place a quiet, watchful air. "'Why do they even let people in here after the stores close?' Will asked, his voice barely above a whisper. "'There are offices and apartments on the floors above us,' Callie said. "'These halls are the only way to get there from the Skyway, unless you're one of the few people with a private entrance.' "'Where's the icon?' I stashed it in one of these shops. We're almost there. The shop in question was an exotic furnishings store, the sort of place where you could find 5,000 mark coffee tables and statues to put on them that cost ten times that much. The front windows were filled with various odds and ends, from vases to chairs to exotic rugs, all of them decadently ornate, none of them bearing visible price tags, 
If you had to ask how much they cost, you couldn't afford them. The entrance to the shop was blocked by a double gate of heavy metal bars with gold overlay, which were clearly designed to swing outward and frame the entrance when the store was open. Right now, however, they were securely held together by an impressive-looking lock. Will whistled appreciatively. That looks tough, he said quietly. But hey, you got in once already, right? He turned away from the lock and took a few steps toward the middle of the hallway, crossing his arms and looking this way and that. Don't worry, Callie, I've got your back, he said confidently. Just do what you need to do, and I'll keep a watch for any badges heading this way. You can count- Um, Will? Yeah? I don't actually need to pick the lock. I have the key. Oh. Will couldn't help feeling a little disappointed at that. He was just starting to get into the whole spy thing. Deflated by the sudden loss of dramatic tension, he watched as Callie fished a golden key out of her pocket and quickly opened the gate. She took the key with her, disappeared into the shadowed interior for about twenty seconds, and then returned carrying a small paper shopping bag with the store's logo printed on it. She shut the gate and it automatically locked itself behind her. Got it, she said. Let's go. As they walked away, Will shot her a sidelong glance. So, how did you get the key to that place, anyway? Callie shrugged. I know Talbot, the owner, she said. I've acquired some rare items for him in the past. He's almost a friend. And this almost friend just gave you the key to his place? No. Callie smirked, and her eyes danced with amusement. But I've been around enough to know where he keeps his spare. I pocketed it earlier today so I wouldn't have to break in tonight after I got the icon. With Trajan after me, I knew I couldn't afford to waste any time. Good thinking. Again, comes from experience. Now, let's get this thing someplace safe. Taking the lift back down to the second-level Skyway, where their clothes were less out of place than on the wealthier fourth level, they caught a transit shuttle and rode it about five kilometers south, then disembarked and began walking east. They were in a residential zone now, a neighborhood of lower-income apartments that were literally one step above the slums and flophouses of the street. Trees, shrubs, and flowers grew in long planters between the road and the sidewalk, and parked skimmers lined the curb on both sides. It looked much like a typical city neighborhood anywhere in the Western world, except that in this case the sky was largely blocked out by another layer of roads about twenty stories overhead. The neighborhood was quiet at this hour, and the occasional lit window was the only sign of activity. After going about five blocks, they came to another apartment that looked a lot like all the rest of them. This one had a sleek black swoop nestled between the skimmers in front of the entrance. Callie opened the door and led Will up the steps to the first door on the right. This is my flat, she said, fishing in her pocket for the key. Well, one of them anyway. It's actually more of a safe house. We should be... Her eyes drifted down to the doorknob, and her voice abruptly trailed off. Will frowned, leaning forward for a closer look. The door was firmly shut, but he noticed a few scratches on the door jamb next to the handle. Come on, Callie whispered, turning to go back down the steps. As she spoke, she tucked the shopping bag into the inside pocket of her borrowed jacket and zipped it up. Now, hurry! As quietly as they could, they hustled back down the steps and out into the street. Callie looked down the road in both directions and let out a loud curse. Pulling out of a parking garage about half a block to the east were three swoops, and they were headed this way.
quick, get on the swoop, she said, practically leaping into the saddle and starting it up in the same instant. Will clambered on behind her and wrapped his arms around her waist, and then they were off like a bolt of lightning, flying back down the street to the west. Callie gave them a little bit of altitude to make sure that they wouldn't run into any street-bound traffic and opened up the throttle a bit wider. The swoop seemed to enjoy the exercise, its engine running at what Will's writer brain labeled a throaty purr. Unfortunately, the swoops behind them didn't seem to be having any trouble handling the pace either. If anything, they were gaining on them. Callie spared a quick glance back over her shoulder and cursed again. Hold on tight, she warned, shouting almost in his ear to be heard over the rush of wind. This is gonna get ugly. Why, can't you lose them or something? Will shouted back. Callie shook her head in an exaggerated motion. They're not the ones I'm worried about, she said. She pointed in front of them. They are! Will looked up and unconsciously squeezed Callie even tighter. Four more swoops were coming toward them from up ahead. They were flying in a box formation over the road, too high and too low. A streak of red fire shot toward them from the one on the upper left, passing about two meters to one side of their swoop, and Will's heart leapt into his throat. Not only were they being chased, they were being shot at. Callie had obviously seen the shot as well, since she immediately threw the swoop into a series of sharp jinks and waggles to throw off any further shots. As they flew closer, Will could see that the thugs were using swoop-mounted machine guns. Highly illegal, but apparently easy enough to conceal when they weren't in firing mode. The fiery red dart Will had seen was a tracer round, packed with chemicals that were designed to burn brightly as it flew. Not very dangerous in itself, but it helped the pilot to aim more effectively at a moving target. And if those guns were anything like the ones in the Air Force's Aeromancer craft, each tracer was accompanied by three to five solid metal bullets you couldn't see. More tracers flew all around them, but Callie kept them out of harm's way. As they came within a hundred meters, she juked left, then right, then down, and finally on a diagonal to the upper left and then they were through the gauntlet, blasting right through the center of the box. Will's stomach joined his heart in the vicinity of his throat, and it was only with great effort that he managed to keep his coffee down. The enemy swoops looped around and gave chase, but by now Callie and Will were passing out of the neighborhood and onto a major skyway. Unfortunately, even the major skyways had relatively little traffic right now, at least in this part of the city and their pursuers merged onto the road without difficulty. Will knew, or at least dearly hoped, that they wouldn't be crazy enough to take shots at them in front of a bunch of other vehicles, but Callie wouldn't be able to stay on this road forever. If this were anything like the movies, Trajan would have his people set up some kind of rolling roadblock further down, probably a couple of heavy cargo trucks full of armed thugs. "'Where are we going?' Will asked, having to shout even louder this time. Daedra's not! Callie yelled back. I think we can lose him there! Will nodded and tried to settle in for the ride. The Daedra's not, as it was called by the traffic reporters, was a snarl of six major divided skyways that converged about two miles south of the Citadel. It was one of the relatively few places where you could pass from one level of the city to another without stopping and pulling into a skimmer lift and it was made all the more unusual by the fact that it connected three levels in this fashion, the first two levels of skyways and the street. 
with its three-dimensional cloverleaf intersections and winding spiral roads going upward and downward, it was easy for a driver to get confused. No doubt that was what Callie was counting on. They rode in silence for a few minutes, weaving in and out of what little traffic there was in an effort to block the Swoopy's view of them as much as possible. Until at last they came to the knot. The levitating skyways loomed out of the darkness ahead the coiled loops of road reminding Will of the DNA double helix on the cover of his biology textbook. Callie pulled into the lane that would take them along the upward spiral, toward the third level of the city. The other swoops saw her and copied the move. Traffic was heavier here, and Callie zipped carefully between the lanes of upward-bound skimmer traffic. She was apparently better at it than the other swoopies, because she quickly gained a substantial lead on them. When she was a full turn of the helix ahead of them, and thus directly above them, with the road beneath her blocking their view, she jumped the swoop over the gap and merged onto the downward spiral. Ducking into the left lane beside a large truck, she matched pace with the vehicle as they rode back down, using it as a shield to block the view of the swoopies on the upward spiral. They rode the helix past the second level, where they'd just come from, and down to street level, then turned and sped off to the west. They hadn't gone more than two blocks when a swoop pulled out of an alley in front of them and fired. Callie cursed feelingly and stretched out a hand in front of her as streaks of fire erupted from the nose of the enemy swoop. Will winced and put his head against Callie's back, bracing for the bullets he was sure were about to tear through his flesh. He was distracted by a flash of light that he felt even through his closed eyelids. Lifting his head to look, he saw that he, Callie, and the swoop were all enveloped in a sphere of pinkish, shimmering light. Little motes of white energy danced here and there around his head, and Will saw some of them darting forward to meet the bullets streaking toward them. One by one, the tracers hit the tiny white sparks and went flying off at bizarre angles. Some went off in entirely the wrong direction, while others only missed the swoop by inches but none of them hit Callie, Will, or their vehicle. Evidently, the swoopy was so puzzled by this that he forgot he was in their way. Callie nudged her swoop upward a little, just enough to avoid hitting the other vehicle, but not enough to avoid hitting the pilot. The long, slender nose of the swoop plowed into his helmet with a loud, awful crack, and he went flying bodily off his mount and hit the asphalt about 40 feet down the road. My God! You killed him, Will gasped. Maybe or maybe not, but I'm not sticking around to find out, Callie said. They darted off down a side street, made several more quick turns to throw off any other potential pursuers, and pulled out onto a lonely, quiet road between two rows of warehouses. Callie slowed down to a speed at which they could carry on a civil conversation. Trajan won't follow us here. This is another gang's turf, she said. But that means we'd better not stay here long either. Unfortunately, Trajan found my safe house, so I have to assume he can find the others, too. You know anywhere where we can spend the night? Will shrugged, though he doubted Callie noticed the gesture. Why don't we go back to my place? Trajan doesn't know me, so he shouldn't think to look there. Callie grinned. Sounds like a plan, Tiger. Just show me where to go. Thank you. 
we'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. JC. What you doing there, JC? Oh, I'm just putting together the next episode of Seven Sun Book Three Destruction. It's gonna be good. Oh, cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. You and 34,999 other people, baby. It's an excellent trilogy. You should be proud. <laughs> I am. Trust me, I am. You should see me buffing my uh, fingernails on my coat here. Hey, speaking of which, didn't we launch fiction podcasts at the same time in June? Yeah, I launched uh, Heaven Season 3, Earth, last June. Yeah, well, you should really turn your eye to podcasting something that's got a little more legs, Murr. Seventh Son is still going strong and looks like Heaven shut down. You shouldn't end your trilogy in just a handful of weeks. But it's not a trilogy. Uh, it's not? No, I have Seasons 4 and 5 mapped out, and in between I'll be podcasting my novel, Playing for Keeps. So I'll be podcasting fiction well into 2008. Hey, what do you have on deck after Seven Sun ends? Uh, uh, I gotta go. Download the Seven Sun trilogy and the Heaven series and look for Playing for Keeps there in November at patiobooks.com. With the passing of podcaster Joe Murphy... People have been asking a lot of questions. What is leomyosarcoma? Is there treatment for this? A friend of mine just got diagnosed with cancer. Now what do I do? That's where Give Us a Minute comes in. Give Us a Minute is a podcast of hope. We invite you to share on this podcast your own trials and tests with cancer, to share memories of Joe and other loved ones, and to join a community that, with the help of Mason Rocket, will work together to combat this disease and find a cure. All proceeds raised by this podcast will go to benefit the Joe Murphy Memorial Fund in its ongoing battle against leomyosarcoma. Subscribe at www.joemurphymemorialfund.org and tell everyone you know. Give us a minute. For Joe, for all of us, for a cure. Hi, this is Mer Lafferty, author of Heaven and host of I Should Be Writing, and you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. And thank you very much, Mer, for that bit of program identification. We are back, ladies and gents, and unfortunately, that is where we are going to have to leave things for this week. Will Callie and Will succeed in keeping the icon out of Trajan's hands? Will Will impress Callie with his sexy bachelor pad? And what was up with that crazy pink aura that just saved their necks? You'll have to come back for our next episode and find out. We've gotten some great feedback on the last two episodes. Everybody was very impressed with Leanne's reading of Huntress for episode two, as I knew you would be. Of course, as Ka said, I'll just go on record saying that I could listen to Leanne Mabry reading the phone book. Fortunately, people seem to like the content of the episode as well, 
kind of like the fact that Morgan was a person first and a vampire second, and that Morgan's feelings and motivations were just as important to the story as her hungry, bestial side. Thanks, Ka. And that's definitely a goal of mine with all of my characters. I don't want to defang my vampires and tank all the monster out of them, but I think it's important also to remember that these characters are people first. Hopefully I'll be able to hold on to that balance between the alien and the familiar as you get to meet some of Metamorcity's other inhabitants. There are two particularly cool moments that happened with Episode 2 that I want to mention. First of all, I received a post on the blog from David Beard, the composer whose music ran under the blood-sharing scene at the end of Huntress. He enjoyed the story and liked the way that I used his music, and he even invited me to use more of his stuff in the future. Thanks, David. And I'll definitely be taking you up on that offer, because, brother, you do good work. If you all want to check out more of David's music, his website is at www.davidbeardmusic.com. The other cool moment is, we got our first voicemail. Chris, this is Michael Spence. I wanted to let you know how delighted I am to discover that this voice that I only knew as a participant in the final Billaba Batting teleconference has exploded on the scene as a storyteller in his own right, and a good one at that. Metamore City is Marvel. And I mean that in the old sense of the term. It is a place of marvels, and I look forward to enjoying each and every one of them. I've now heard episode two, uh, <laughs> and I'm amazed to find that Ms. Mabry is one of the most unsuspected, and I hope to be very much appreciated, vocal actresses of our era. So, uh, assuming that doesn't swell your head way too much, I'll sign off and just let you know that I'm looking forward to more. You have gotten off to a rollicking start, and I think this has a great future in it. That's it. We'll talk to you later. Bye now. Thanks for the kind words, Michael. And I couldn't agree more about Leanne being one of the great vocal talents of our time. Fortunately, she reportedly has a few things in the works that are going to be big news when she can talk about them, so definitely keep your eyes peeled for more great stuff coming from Leanne in 2008. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.5 license. If you like it, share it with a friend, or post about us on your blog. You can also vote for us at Podcast Pickle and Podcast Alley, or post a review of us on Yahoo!, if you want to send us comments, you can do it at feedback at metamorecity.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 206-350-7333. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some sound effects for this podcast were provided by the Free Sound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. The music for this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.